The Writer's Toolkit is published by Nick Hearn Books. Order direct from the publisher and get 20% off this and other great titles. Visit nickhearnbooks.co.uk. A virtual coffee with inspiring playwrights and screenwriters. This is the Writer's Toolkit podcast. Welcome, fellow writers, to another episode. My guest today is Australian playwright Hilary Bell. I first read Hilary's play last year and was really keen to chat to her, so I'm thrilled our calendars aligned this time around and we were able to connect ahead of the opening of her adaptation of A Christmas Carol. Before we launch in, if you're listening on Spotify, I'd love it if you could take a second to send a star rating this way. The algorithms will do their magic, and I believe it makes it easier for other writers to discover the show. Likewise, whichever platform you're listening on, if there's a way to send some stars or write a review, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you. Dickens fans will be spoiled for choice this season with two exciting new screen adaptations of A Christmas Carol. On a bitter, cold Christmas Eve, one dark soul is selected for redemption by the ghosts of Christmas past, present and yet to come. Dear Evan Hansen composers Pasek and Paul have penned tunes for Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds to bring to life in Spirited, which is coming to movie theatres and Apple TV+. I'm your ghost of Christmas present. Like a Christmas carol? While Olivia Coleman and Luke Evans lend their voices to Scrooge, an animated film over on Netflix. You can't change the past, but you can learn from it. And audiences in Australia have options to see new live versions on stage too. Melbourne audiences will get to see Jack Thorne's multi-Tony award-winning adaptation at the Comedy Theatre. And in Sydney, Hilary Bell's own modern adaptation is set to delight audiences at Ensemble Theatre. Coming up... Taking a break from rehearsals, Hilary joins me to talk about her take on the immortal classic. We had to sort of acknowledge what had happened in the world, what it means now to be a miser or to be stony-hearted. Um, I think we've, we've seen the best and the worst of people in the last couple of years. You know, is Scrooge really the type of person that buys up all the rat tests on eBay and then sells them at three times the price or hoards all the toilet paper? <laughs> The Writer's Toolkit Podcast with Paul Kalbergi. Hilary Bell's plays have been produced across Australia and Europe. Wolf Lullaby, her shattering tale of love, darkness and human culpability, written in 1995, won her the inaugural Philip Parsons Young Playwrights Award and was produced in the USA by companies including Atlantic and Chicago's famous Steppenwolf. Her play, Victim, Sidekick, Boyfriend, Me, which examines the psychology of teenage relationships, was included in the National Theatre's Connections programme in London in 2012. Hilary's other plays include Fortune, The Red Balloon, and Lorca-inspired The Bloody Bride. She's adapted the works of Chekhov, Molière, Dickens and Shakespeare, and also writes opera, song cycles and musical theatre. Offstage, Hilary is the co-author of several best-selling children's books, including Alphabetical Sydney and Numerical Street. Hilary is a member of the Playwrights Collective Seven On and a graduate of the Juilliard Playwrights Studio, the National Institute of Dramatic Art and the Australian Film, Television and Radio School. In 2003, she was the Tennessee Williams Fellow in Creative Writing at the University of the South, Tennessee, and in 2013, the Patrick White Playwriting Fellow at the Sydney Theatre Company. Hello, Hilary. Welcome. Hello there. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. Look at your professional setup. It's amazing. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, I, I've been listening to, I've listened to a couple of the different interviews and it's just, it's really inspiring. It's wonderful. I'm so happy I found out about it. Oh, that's great to hear. Thank you for listening to them. That's, re- that's really, mm, really good. Can't wait to read your book and, re- and listen to the rest of the interviews. This was my lockdown project. I guess it's one of the funny things about COVID that these little green shoots of positive things have come out of it as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. It finally feels like summer's on the way here in Auckland. Am I mm. talking to you in Sydney right now? Uh, yes, yes. And I'm in the attic, in um, like right under the window, so the sun is pouring in. Is that your normal writing space that I'm talking to you in? Yes, it is. So I, I'm in a 
we're in a one-story house with a little attic on top and it hasn't been had the roof raised so the only way you can stand upright is if you're right in the middle of the room right um or if you're very short so <laughs> that's my spot but it's really it's it's a lovely place to work and it's kind of a little bit removed from the rest of the house yeah yeah brilliant can you paint a picture of your general um you know when you when you sit down to a writing session what kind of things do you have to have around you what environment do you create basically you know I get up I walk the dog I have breakfast I do a couple of things that I need to do like um I I do some sort of exercise whether it's going to Pilates or doing my made-up yoga routine at home then I just sit down and start work um (laughs) I pick up from the day before where I left off and I just kind of plunge in um I do drink copious bucket loads of tea and so uh, as I mentioned before I work in the attic so I'm up and down the stairs a lot and I get a lot of exercise I suppose doing that and that's what I do really I I sit down um, I open my notebook from where I was the day before do you have to have any music on what kind of um, do you like silence or Uh, well that's a good point I don't like having any music on I find that really distracting and I also don't like to go to cafes or public spaces to write. The only thing, and and I should also say, I feel like I'm always changing my routine because, you know, it never feels like I've got quite the perfect atmosphere or quite the perfect set of circumstances. So I'm always striving to improve it. But um, so I do change it up quite frequently. But recently I've got a um, visiting scholarship to the State Library here in New South Wales. Oh, fantastic. Which is wonderful. So the real point of it is using the library for research, but I'm actually just using the room and going into this nice quiet space where there are other people silently working. And it's actually not the reading room, but it's a little private-ish room. It's for members and, and scholars and fellows. So it feels just kind of uh, quiet enough and undistracting enough and you're allowed to make tea in there which is very oh, important yeah and yeah. nibble on your snacks um so I've been doing that for probably uh, a month and that's great but I know I'm going to get used to it soon and then I'll have to find okay. something else okay so there's, some, there's something there's a certain amount of accountability I always find in being in a public space even yes. if you're interacting with people per se just being out of your own space where it's easy to not write I find that if I'm opening my laptop in a public space I feel like a certain amount of accountability (laughs) (laughs) and it's even things like you know um you've heard my dog chewing his bone on the carpet and I have a cat who they have a really good sense of what time it is and when it gets anywhere like within the hour of dinner time they both just come and sit on my desk and uh it's pretty hard to type when you have a cat sitting on your on your laptop so (laughs) Being at the library means I don't have to worry about that. And even if I kind of wanted to go and start making dinner or checking the mail box, I can't do any of that because I'm not at home. So I think there's something kind of nice about cutting off all those potential procrastinatory actions. Definitely. So if your routine changes, do you think it changes by project because each project calls for a different environment or a different state you try to kind of get into? I'm just trying to – that's a very good question. I think – Depending on the project, because I've been doing a lot of collaborations recently. Okay. Um, and so that often involves meeting with people and then that aspect of the process will be very different. Yeah. Um, but when it comes down to sitting down and writing, that's that's kind of my routine. Okay. Is there anywhere nearby that you go to for inspiration if you're feeling kind of not necessarily in a writing mode but want to kind of be stimulated some other how? Well, when I write lyrics, which I do um, quite a lot, and also my sort of side hustle is children's books, um, which are always or so far have always been written in verse. So when I'm working on something like that, I love to be walking. So I'd take the dog to the park. Uh, he has to be on the leash because I can't concentrate on him running around and needing yeah. to know where he is and going over these rhymes or rhythms in my mind. But um, as long as it's nowhere too distracting, like a main street of shops or too many interesting people to look at, yeah, um, yeah. then that's a really good, I don't know if it's the rhythm of walking or just kind of having a lot of space around. And it's not true of all sorts of writing, it's really just verse and lyrics. So that, that's a really helpful thing when I'm doing that. 
I talk a little in the book about finding community, finding mm. writing community, again, for accountability, whether it's kind of like a gym buddy, like a writing buddy that mm. you can be in touch with on a regular basis, uh, sharing work or whatever. You're part of a different kind of collective, aren't you? Can you talk yes. a little bit about the dramatists collective that you're part of? Sure. So we're called Seven On, and there are seven of us, and we are all mid-career writers. So we've, um, you know, we're sort of roughly the same age, middle-aged. Um, we started 2005. So uh, I had been living in the States for about nine years and I came back in 2005. And I was very kind of inspired, I think, by the level of activity of playwrights in New York. You know, they're, they're yeah. not at all complacent. They're getting out there and they're doing stuff and they're making things happen. And I wanted to bring that energy back to Sydney. And so I met with a couple of these writers and I they were friends, you know, from before, but I didn't know them terribly well. And we weren't similar in terms of the kind of theatre we love or our approaches or anything like that. But we just decided we would try getting together and making something happen. And early on, our goal, and this was inspired by a group in New York called 13P, and that was 13 mm. playwrights who came together to produce each other's plays. And I think the idea was their least producible play or the one play they loved that no theatre company would put on. Oh, I love that. That was what they would do. And they spent, I think, 13 years making sure everybody got produced yeah that's right so I think that was for me the sort of initial inspiration point but quite quickly it changed into something else and um, we started actually writing plays together and yeah and they were the projects that you couldn't really do by yourself so for example we took um, Nietzsche's book Zarathustra thus spoke Zarathustra which is a totally unadaptable (laughs) Right. <laughs> but between the seven of us, we just kind of each pulled out strands that we were interested in. And, and we don't write in terms of looking over each other's shoulders and saying, why don't we put that sentence there? We we go off on our own. We make a virtue of the um, difference in, in our writing voices. Yeah. And then we bring them all together. And, of course, then there's a lot of dramaturgy that needs to go on. Mm. Um, yes, so we, we've been devising different ways of working together. But I think the most beneficial aspect of the group is having six other people that you can turn to at any time, you know, when you feel like just giving up playwriting, which some of us have come very close to doing because you can't sure. get a production or you just keep banging your head against the same brick wall or you have unending writer's block. Um we turn to each other for that. We turn yeah. to each other to say, I've just been approached by this producer and they sound a bit shonky. Has anyone heard about them or worked with them? And there's a kind of, it's a given that there's a cone of silence around our conversation. So sure. as long as our emails don't get hacked, um, we're, yes. we're okay. Yes. I love that. Yeah, it's really, it's wonderful. Or, you know, somebody says, um, I've just been offered a teaching job and I can't do it. Would anyone else like oh, it? brilliant. Yeah, so it's it's really, really fantastic. And it's they're the kind of conversations that you can have have you know with friends or even with other colleagues but I think now that we've been going for 17 years there's a level of trust and shorthand um yeah just makes it you don't have to kind of explain you know or or yes uh, give a detailed description of the circumstances under which you're working because we all um after this long we all have developed um yeah, a, a kind of shorthand between us. And so are you actively producing each other's work in rotation now or is it we merely all collaborative that. work? Okay. <laughs> no, we kind of dropped that early on. Although one thing we're focusing a lot now on is publishing. Okay. So we have the, the hurdle we keep facing is production. We've tried to produce our own work and because none of us are innately producers, it's really difficult actually yeah. to yeah. Uh, just make that get to that last step and we've tried a few times and we've had other theater companies produce our work as Mm. a group but um the other thing that's interesting about it too is as seven freelance writers it's agreed upon between all of us that our own work always comes first right so we may have a group project going but then if somebody gets a commission or a residency sure we don't pressure them to go oh but you have to finish this because this is our deadline you know we go okay well if you want to opt out for this one that's fine and and the other nice thing about it too is that we 
all have very different skill sets uh, and we all have different networks even. So even though the playwriting community in Australia is not gigantic, um, like anywhere else, there's a whole lot of subcultures within it. Sure. So some of us are more connected with the independent scene and some with the main stage theatres. So, yes, we're able to kind of draw on all of those mm. different things. And I would say that the only drawback is when there's seven of you, it's very easy to go, oh, can somebody else do that? because I'm too busy, and then maybe it can never get done. Yeah. So you guys had an anthology published um, by Currency Press, is that right? Yes, we've had three anthologies published now, okay. and we're working on our fourth. And I think that's another thing, you know, we're all roughly the same age, and you start to think, what am I going to leave behind me? And theatre is so ephemeral. Yeah. Um, and yeah. publishing is, you know, everything is kind of digital these days. So if you don't leave something physical behind you, it can sort of feel a little bit like, what did I spend my life doing? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's endlessly rewarding, isn't it? As well to see your work in print, um, yes, to have a physical absolutely. thing to hold in your hands. Yes, and you, I mean, you must feel, you know, with the writer's toolkit, that must be a really significant publication yeah. achievement. Yeah, yes. Are they exercises that you created, or did you collect them from other playwrights? Or? The majority are all original that I've sat down and thought about, and you know, wow. created because that that was kind of born out of you know doing those workshops in person, you know, over a number of years, and having a collection of exercises and thinking it feels natural to put this all together and push it out there into the world and be able to share it in in mm. one volume. So yeah, Fantastic. it's all designed to be done alone, but lots can be adapted to be done, you know, as part of groups as well, and mm. um, to mm. kick off writing sessions um, or or in another workshops too. It's also kind of a toolkit for other teachers of playwriting and screenwriting to be able to use in a workshop environment as well. Wonderful, fantastic. Let's move on and talk about some of your projects. And it's perfectly timely that you're um, in rehearsals right now, I believe, I your adaptation of A Christmas Carol. Yes. How, how are rehearsals going? Oh, it's heaven. It's so much fun. I think that's the other thing, you know, when you were asking about my routine, when you work as a playwright, some of your time is spent alone in a room and then some of your time is spent in workshops and then some of your time, if you're lucky, is spent in a rehearsal room. Yeah. I love that. I don't think I'd thrive as a novelist or a poet alone in a room all the time. The input mm. and the stimulation and the collaborative aspect too of theatre is a really critical part for me of what makes it worth doing. Definitely. Uh, but, yes, Christmas Carol, so it's a, it's a cast of extraordinarily fun people not just talented but they're everybody um is extremely inventive and imaginative and i'm working with a wonderful director called damien ryan who is just endlessly inventive it's very uh homemade and low-tech and there's live music uh, all the actors are also singers and some of them are musicians as well uh, and my father is playing Scrooge. So we haven't worked in this capacity together. He directed a play of mine 22 years ago. Oh, wow. And we haven't worked together since then. So wow. it's a big thrill. I have down here to talk to you about your uh, theatrical lineage because there's it's not just your father, right? You're from a whole no, family a whole of... a um, lot of us. <laughs> yeah. Artists and actors and uh, yes. TV presenter and musicians. Yes, that's right. Yes. So my parents are both actors and directors. Um, they set up a theatre company in 1970. So I was born in Stratford-on-Avon in 1966 and they came back. Uh, my father had gone over to work with the Royal Shakespeare Company and my mother was involved in that as an actor as well. So they came back to Australia in 1970 and established the Nimrod Theatre Company with a couple of other directors. Uh, they continued to work as actors and directors and running this theatre company pretty much all my childhood and then my father established the Bell Shakespeare Company in 1990 um, by which time I'd left home and they are still at it still working in the industry my sister's an actor um, her partner is a writer and tv presenter my husband is a jazz musician and composer and he has written the music for the christmas carol wow. adaptation wow your christmas parties at home with the family around must be really entertaining <laughs> <laughs> yeah everybody has to get up and do a little 
little show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, you're no stranger to adaptation. Reading through your impressive resume, you've you know had your hands on Moliere's Hypochondriac, uh, The Seagull, and A Comedy of Errors. So, how did you sit down and approach A Christmas Carol? Um, it's actually, I, I, it's a show that I've been collaborating on with my father uh, okay. since we. It was his idea, and I think um, he came to me with the idea before COVID, so it would have been about the end of 2018. And we both love pantomime and we love musical, we love vaudeville. Um, I love it because he introduced me to it as a child. Um, And it was kind of, if you look at the early Nimrod style, it was very much based in that kind of very rough theatre. And so it's it's part of my playwriting DNA. I mean, you probably wouldn't guess it having read Splinter or Wolf Lullaby, but <laughs> it's, it's, very, it's the kind of theatre that I love to watch and I love yeah. to, to make. So that was his initial idea. He said, why don't we think about doing Christmas Carol? At that point, he was going to direct and play Scrooge. Okay. And we pitched it to the ensemble and they said yes, and then COVID happened. So it's a show you can only do at Christmas, obviously. Yeah, um, yeah. So the first year, we couldn't do it. The second year, something else was already booked for Christmas. And so three years later, really, since we started working on it, here we are. But it's changed a lot, partly because of COVID. We felt like it wasn't enough to just do a kind of fun pantomime adaptation of Christmas Carol. We had to sort of acknowledge what had happened in the world, what it means now to be a miser or to be stony-hearted. I think we've seen the best and the worst of people in the last couple of years. Is Scrooge really the type of person that buys up all the rat tests on eBay and then sells them at three times the price or hoards all the toilet paper? (laughs) Right. That's right. Who is he today? Because we're talking about kindness all the time. Exactly. Yes. And he's he is very far now, our Scrooge, from the kind of threadbare, nightcap-wearing, candle-holding idea of Scrooge. Yeah. He's 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 a, a fat cat in a pinstripe suit, you know, the kind of person you see when you turn on Sky News. Yeah. And that's yeah. a much more interesting journey. Definitely. How does that person become somebody who, by the end, opens his heart, opens his wallet, opens his front door to the rest of the street? Yeah, definitely. You see, on your website, it's listed as a, as a political panto. And I love that you've mm. brought it bang up today. And I think you have to find a reason to, you know, why adapt A Christmas Carol in 2022? And how does it resonate right now? Now and it feels yes. like that's what you found there. I think so. I mean, I don't think everything by any means has to be political. And I, I don't believe in everything no. having, to, having to be kind of relevant, socially relevant. I don't think that's a necessary element for, for writing a play. But it's got to have some connection with the human condition, you know. Um, it's it's got to, even if it doesn't necessarily tell us anything new it's got to tell us something very personal and give us a way of accessing um, or articulating the kinds of things that we feel and we know to be true but maybe we haven't seen reflected back to us before yeah so we're hoping it's the kind of thing people will bring their children to but it's also pretty scary I mean we're really leaning into the ghostliness of the story okay um so it's something for everyone. Yeah. Mm. When you approach something like A Christmas Carol that has has been adapted so many times, is there a temptation to uh, to not read or re-watch anything and just go oh, back yeah. to the source text or do you like to immerse yourself and make sure you're no. not duplicating <laughs> a previous version? I don't want to... I, I want to um, make sure I haven't accidentally copied anybody else until I've written a first draft. Okay. So I... I only read the Dickens. I don't look left, right, or anywhere else. Except, you know, I've I read a lot about Dickens, and Dickens adored magic and he adored theatre. And I mean, to the most ridiculous extent. And speaking of family concerts, you know, they would do a play at the end of every year that he would write and direct, and he would go to and and invite people okay. to come and watch. Yeah. And he there was one year where he actually knocked down the wall of his house, oh, wow. so <laughs> they would have. Um, a longer view with a backdrop painted by somebody from the Gosh, opera company. Um, that's commitment, I mean, isn't it? <laughs> and so, oh, absolutely, so much commitment. So I'll read, I'll read yes. around it, and I'll suddenly read. Uh, you know, if we were talking about pantomime, then I would research pantomime, and I would watch 
whatever I could find or listen to whatever I could find relating to that. But I wouldn't look at other versions of Christmas Carol. I don't know. I haven't actually been that tempted to. I feel like I've got it out of my system now. And funnily enough, actually, I've found out that there are five other versions of Christmas Carol just in Australia. There's one at the Victorian Opera as well. Um, There's one in Canberra, Shake and Stir's company is doing it. So, yeah. Timeless. Very different. One's an opera, one's a one-person show, one's um, a drag queen. And, I mean, that's just Australia. I can't imagine how many there are in in England. (laughs) But um, I think there's got to be something going on. I think, you know, after COVID, and, I I mean, why are we saying after? We're still in it, of course. But after social distancing and mask wearing were compulsory, I just think people need to be reminded there's always the possibility of things getting better. Yes. And we all have the chance to change for the better, which I think is the essential message of A Christmas Carol. Absolutely. So do you have any tips for anybody sitting down thinking about approaching um, the adaptation of a classic? Mm, um, I would say, I mean, it it always depends on why you're doing it or perhaps who's asked you to do it. So the adaptations I've done other than A Christmas Carol, have been commissions. When it came to Seagull, I was asked by a theatre company to do a very straight version. The director hadn't really decided at that point whether he was going to set it in contemporary times or the 1950s, which is actually what he ended up doing. But he didn't want it to kind of lean too heavily into Australian colloquialisms or feel too kind of, yeah, too too local. Um, So I really treated that with a very light touch and and I suppose the main thing to do there was to strip away you know if you read the mammoth it's very American or Tom Stoppard's to us in Australia feels Mm. very English if you read the 1950s ones they're quite dated now so it was to make it um sound fresh for a modern audience but also just to do some practical things like get rid of some of the servants right have have a budget to have all those servants on stage and then with the hypochondriac i had been asked to do an adaptation of a comedy and they left it up to me and i loved that play well that's great isn't it been given that room to play yes that open open brief like that oh yeah and they were very loose about what you know they didn't have anything in particular that they wanted me to do with that so I kind of actually completely rewrote the third act and I turned it into a sort of a carry-on movie yeah 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 yeah. it it had bedpans galore singing and dancing I even kind of changed the story a little bit at the end and needless to say I had to get rid of a whole lot of characters because we only had five actors and even they were quadrupling so you know given those limitations I actually kind of lent into those and made those part of the comedy so that was a much looser version and I certainly didn't go line by line I went beat by dramatic beat when I was adapting that Um, and then there's a lot of you know sometimes you can tell with classics that they're is uh, they're constrained by certain things. So they have to pay tribute to their patrons or they have to toe the political line of the day or they have to incorporate the the clown of the company's yes. routine that's not very funny to us in, you know, 21st century yeah. Australia. So you have the freedom to get rid of all of that stuff and maybe introduce new stuff. And I think you've got to think about it as being for an audience. It's ephemeral it won't always be relevant, your mm. version. Let it let it go if it's going to go. Think about what's going on right now and what will make it hit home hardest. And I think also it's important to consider what the impact would have been on that play for an audience of Moliere's okay. time or Shakespeare's time. That's interesting. Chekhov's. Yeah. yeah, and then find contemporary yeah. equivalents. So if somebody was unmarried and had a child out of wedlock or if somebody insulted the king I mean that doesn't mean very much nowadays but then it meant absolute social ostracization so how do you find contemporary find those parallels today exactly yeah yeah. Do, do you do adaptations? I haven't. I've been tempted. Have... It definitely interests me. And I think I think maybe perhaps the, a reservation in doing it is thinking, first of all, why why adapt this? Yeah. And then, you know, what do I have what do I have to add? And perhaps approaching something will, will be sparked by having that answer first of all before sitting down and yes. thinking, gosh, here, here's a response to that. Mm. I think um there's something that appeals to me about the constraints of it. And I think also that's why I love writing lyrics. Yeah. You know, there are these in Posed constraints. Uh, you've got to stay within this arena, and there's something very stimulating to creativity when you know that you can't. Yeah. You can't have six actors. You can only have five. 
Um, maybe you're working in a theatre that says all of those all of those actors have to be female. So how do you make that work? You know, it, there's something really kind of stimulating. I think about that. I can definitely relate to that. I'm currently working on um, the book for a, a jukebox musical, mm. and so a kind of an adaptation, I guess, in in a sense of working with that source material and you know, being limited to, to, to that, the, this is the kind of clay that you have to, to play with, you know, make, make something out mm. of it um, and finding those through lines and repeated story elements between different songs and uh, crafting yeah. an original piece from that. And also the same with verbatim theatre as well. You know, mm. you've collected these interviews. This is your source material now, you know, craft a, mm. a piece of theatre from that. So the, the limitation is exciting. Yeah. Well, I think what you're talking about is even more difficult in a way, the impositions of writing existing around existing songs, and especially if they're not songs written for the theatre. Yeah, you know, the yeah. pop songs, if that's what they are, um, normally have one idea that doesn't necessarily develop, and so to craft those within a, a dramatic scenario, that's really challenging, and when it works, it's thrilling. The conversation continues after these messages. The Writer's Toolkit is published by Nick Hearn Books. Order direct from the publisher and get 20% off this and other great titles. Visit nickhearnbooks.co.uk This podcast is fueled by coffee. If you'd like to support the show, you'll find the Buy Me A Coffee link in the show notes. This podcast is fueled by coffee. If you'd like to support the show, you'll find the Buy Me A Coffee link in the show notes. Welcome back to the Writer's Toolkit podcast. So let's let's talk about mm. something a little bit darker then. Okay. And, and your play Splinter, which I've, I I read it originally when I contacted you, I think a year ago, and then picked it up just this week to reread it, mm. and it's brilliant. The sense of unease throughout is um, is chilling. Mm. Could you just give the little overview of what Splinter is about? The play starts with the restoration of a child who's been lost for nine months, and the parents have pretty much kind of fallen apart, but they've just held it together, and they. Uh, as a family are reunited at the beginning of the play. And I guess just to quickly sidestep, that's that's one thing that really interested me was starting a play with what you would normally think of as being the end. Um, and then the story unfolds with the child not speaking. She's only little. She's uh, five. And the father starts to wonder as time goes on if she really is their daughter because physically she's changed in the nine months of her absence. Um, When he tries to raise this question with his wife, she bites his head off and she refuses to even countenance the idea. And so he's actually, he he has to keep it to himself um, and play act that he's as thrilled and convinced that it really is his daughter, his, his wife is. And so a division starts to grow between them. And he kind of gets more and more obsessed with the fact that this isn't not only is not his child, but maybe isn't even a real human being. <laughs> and that perhaps she's a changeling. And I won't tell you what happens at the end. Well, you've read it, but yeah. um, the audience can... <laughs> read it for themselves okay so let's rewind to the beginning then Mm. because laura's return is such a great jumping off point i love that you plant us into the story there almost after the first trauma before a second trauma is is about to begin um it's wonderful and i was talking when i when i interviewed simon stevens about his play blindsided Mm. um what I was interested in was approaching a story like this and like that as a parent Mm. um did you almost need to take yourself to the the darkest thoughts you can imagine, you know, immerse yourself in that story as a parent, imagining yeah. your own children returning to you after being taken or vanishing I or whatever? Did. I know. It's, it's a terrible place to take yourself to. But I think the play is as much about the breakdown of that marriage as it is about um, what might have happened to that child. And the splinter refers to the Snow Queen fairy tale about the splinter in the boy's eye and heart. If you Do you know that story? No, no. Oh, it's a wonderful fairy tale by Hans Christian Andersen. The devil's mirror smashes at the beginning okay. of the story and a little 
splinter of glass lodges in a child's eye and heart and it makes this once friendly, happy little boy become cold and suspicious and jaundiced in his view of the world. So I was interested in that. And, and of course, you know, anyone who, who has ever had a splinter knows that a little mm-hmm. tiny thing, unless it's withdrawn, it infects and it festers and it grows yeah. and it can kind of sicken the whole body. Um, so there was that idea of the splinter, but also the splintering of this relationship. So, yes, I did have to go to the darkest places and I did, I read a lot of interviews and books and that there was a particular story that had happened, a true story about a girl who had disappeared. She'd been kidnapped from her house and disappeared for nine months. And there's something about, you know, the absence of nine months that feels very symbolic mm, in terms definitely. of gestation. Um, but I just thought, what does that sound? And they, and she was returned and nobody knew for a little while. They did eventually find out where she'd been and what had happened, but she just kind of turned up again one day. And I just thought, what would they have talked about at dinner? You know, what do you, yeah. how do you, how do you possibly get back to normal as a family after a child has gone through something like that? Yeah, and especially How did you begin to pick up those pieces or splinters. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And in in when I was thinking about this play, I really didn't want to have a child actor performing, and I didn't want to have an adult pretending to be a child. And I think, well, how do we do mm. it? What do we do? And then I thought, well, what if it's a puppet, a Bunraku style puppet? And I liked that idea, and I liked the sort of weird element of heightened realism that that would bring to a yes. production. And then I thought, well, who would voice the puppet? And I thought, well, what if she actually doesn't speak? Isn't there something scarier and more mm. unsettling and maybe even more believable about yeah. a traumatised child who isn't speaking and how that feeds the parent's anxiety and suspicion about yeah. who she might be? Even as a reader at that point, you almost want her to answer <laughs> yeah. as the father is wanting those answers yes, and right. having her mute as a character is, is wonderful. Well, that was the first production. And when we introduced the idea of a character being played by a puppet, it sort of opened up all sorts of other possibilities about how do you bring this element of unease into the world of these characters through puppetry and not just, you know, puppets, but um, using wind, using different kind of elements, using different sort of materials, um, getting away from kitchen sink naturalism. Um, And then it was done again a couple of years ago and that director was curious to see what would happen if you didn't have any physical presence for Laura. Okay. So she was literally an empty space oh, wow. but the two actors the parents you know were in absolute communication about how tall she was how fast she moved across the room where she okay. sat down so you as an audience um because they were endowing that empty space with so much yeah. uh, such a sense of of presence it's so layered that isn't it it's like it's she's still gone she still hasn't returned exactly and and it, there were also audience members who thought that she was kind of a, a figment of their imagination and that she had never come back at oh, all so that was a whole other story yeah, so it is kind of, it's wonderful what you can do in theatre. You couldn't get away with that mm. in film or TV, you know. I, I love that. Or radio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In that early production then, the puppeteers also assumed another role, didn't they? They did, yes, yes. So they became this kind of um, element of a supernatural world that the father feared had taken his child away and replaced the real Laura with a fairy. <laughs> I love that. And then, and then one of those puppeteers did have lines as Laura, is that right? Yes. Laura actually does speak at the very end of the play, but by that point the father is so far gone in his conviction that she's not his real child yeah. that it doesn't okay. really... He keeps redrawing the line in the sand, you know. Okay, mm. yeah. I was watching an interview on YouTube, um, Hilary, you were talking, it may have been from the Hot House production, I think. You were talking mm. about the playful discovery in your kind of early research period, reading a lot of Victorian Gothic literature and filling a scrapbook. Mm, that's right. Could you talk us through that process? Well, it came about in a funny way, the splinter. Um, I was approached by the Sydney Theatre Company to pitch an idea for a children's show. And believe it or not, that's what I pitched. <laughs> and they were kind of horrified and they said, well, no, we don't think this is really appropriate. But um, Polly Rowe, who was the dramaturg and literary manager at the STC then, uh, didn't quite want to let it go. And she came back to me several months later and she said, I think there's really something in this idea, but I don't think it's a kid's play. Um, why don't we see if it could be something for the main stage? 
and she said, "Let's do a workshop, but but don't write anything. Let's." And, and there was a group of player uh, of okay. actors there called the residents at the time. Um, I think it was about ten young actors, and she said, "Let's get some of them. Let's get in a room." I had come up already with the idea of the puppet and she said, let's get a puppeteer in the room and let's just play. And so um, I had, yes, I had filled this this scrapbook of just kind of images or stories, or postcards, uh, photographs that felt like they could be part of this world. And so before I, I think I had a very loose outline of the story, but I hadn't written any scenes. And so Alice Osborne, the puppeteer, would um, propose these little kind of projects or exercises to the actors, none of whom were puppete- puppeteers themselves, by the way. But she would say, um, you've got 10 minutes and I want you to create um, a picture for an absence. And so they would go off in pairs and we'd come back okay. with five different images of what an absence could look like. And it was so exciting to work like that. And we yeah. didn't, we never told those actors the end game. So we didn't say, this is a story about a girl who goes missing. We gave okay. them a little, we kind of drip fed them little, little bits of information. So they wouldn't kind of second guess things or go to the most obvious manifestations of an idea. Um, and so mm. I didn't write a first draft until the end of this creative development. And I think because of that, it was much more open and much stranger perhaps than it would have been if I'd sat down to just yeah. write and then hand it over to a director and a, and a company. Were you hearing fragments of yeah. things that may have turned into dialogue and Absolutely. as you went through the journey? Yeah. Yes, and one of, the, one of the major influences on me for that play was Henry James's novel, Return of the Screw. I love, I love that book and I love how ambiguous it is and how you can read it in so many different ways yeah. and you're never really sure what the truth is, yet there's an absolute kind of ironclad internal logic to all those different versions of what the yeah. story may yeah. be. Um, and, I, and I would bring in passages, sometimes just a sentence from the book, and we would say, okay, actors go off and create with um, a packet of spaghetti, a bit of tinfoil and some gauze, an image um, that looks like uh, a worm in the bud. You know, that's what you've got. Create that. And um, and they would do it. Oh, wow. I loved that way of working. And I've got to say that was 2012, I think. And in the last, in the 10 years since then, I've always looked for different ways to collaborate because I just, I find it so inspiring working with people from different aspects of theatre making and seeing what happens when we, you know, we bring our ideas together. Yeah. What about the decision to avoid character names in, mm. in Splinter? You have man and woman. Mm. I'm guessing that was intentional. Mm. Again, I think it came from that space of trying to stay absolutely open. And um, I wanted to keep a sense of fairy tale. Right. I wanted, to, you know, there were, there were two children who went into the forest. You know, I wanted to keep that level of kind of heightened storytelling, set it somewhere that was kind of familiar but could be anywhere, anytime. Mm. Um, so nobody is really kind of talking about being online or doing anything like that. You know, I think somebody yeah. makes a phone call, but I wanted to keep a sense of timelessness as well. That's good. Mm. And it allows it to be set anywhere at any time. Yeah. It, 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 it's such a universal story as well that it it transcends borders and, yeah. and everything. I mean, I think in my mind, I, I really believe in specificity as a writer. And I, I think as I was writing it, I did have a very particular part of the coastline that, that okay. yes, in mind and the kind of weather and the kind of um, landscape that it would, that, that the story was unfolding in. But by stripping away any place names or anything like that, yes, it kind of allows it to live in any location. Mm. So what about then, I, so I read there's a film adaptation uh, in the mm. works or on the cards, but I mean, I, maybe you can't even reveal this, but how do you get around what to do with Laura in a screen adaptation? I've given, I'm not working on it. I'm, I'm a consultant, okay. but um, it's, it's a writer and a director who are working on it together. And okay. I've basically said, do whatever you want. It does need to literally be a young girl in that version. Okay. But I love what they're doing. And I, 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 one of the things I have urged them to do is get away from the dialogue because okay. I think stage dialogue in film, especially a play like The Splinter, which, as I've said, is sits somewhere between 
naturalism and heightened realism. Yeah, yeah. Um, it sort of sounds like people talk, but it sort of sounds like poetry, and that just doesn't work on film um, in my experience. So yeah, I've, yeah. I've urged them to not be too faithful to the script in every aspect except the kind of emotional unease. That's the most important thing, I think, to capture. Yeah. Let's talk about Summer of Harold, okay. which will enjoy a world premiere at Ensemble Theatre in Sydney in September next year. Yes. First of all, a little snippet, I think, which must have been from your website, which which says the value of physical objects serving as portals into the lives of characters. And I think it read to me almost like a an exercise that I have in the book, mm. asking writers to find an object and work backwards from, from the object mm. as it's listed and billed on the Ensemble Theatre website. You read more about Pinter and the 80s influence as well. It just yeah. sounds endlessly exciting and, and magical. So can you tell us what Summer of Harold is all about? So it started with a one act. I was approached last year by the Griffin Theatre and the Australian Design Centre, which is a little art gallery here, to write a play that could be performed in the art gallery for the Sydney Festival, which was this past January. Okay. Um, and talk about uh, impositions and <laughs> and constraints you know it was kind of ridiculous but I loved it it could it, it was one person we couldn't have any external sound or lights it had to be cheap as chips it had to be able to be performed in a non-theatrical space it had to be I think what was it a limited 40 minutes and it was in amongst all these precious objects so we had to be very careful about you know what you could do in the space yeah and it also had to speak to the exhibition that was on in this art gallery. So within all those limitations, um, I came up with this story by asking the artists who had contributed objects to this exhibition a little bit about their lives. And one of the artists, her name's Margaret Woodward, and I said, you know, who are you? What have you done? Tell me a bit about you. And one of the stories that she told me just in passing was that in the 80s she had gone on her, you know, backpacker odyssey to England, as Australians tend to do, yeah. and gotten a job as housekeeper to Harold Pinter and oh, Antonia Fraser. It was That's real. That's a true story. It's true. She and her friend no from Tasmania, wow. the two of them, 23 years old, and for a summer they worked for Harold and Antonia. Gosh. Can you imagine? And it was such a great story. And there wasn't really any actual story to it. It was just a kind mm. of series of things that happened. But yeah. her memory was really, really um, clear. And uh, I guess because she's an artist, she had all these great sort of visual memories of, of the house and of um, parties that had happened there and Tom Stoppard turning up and, uh, wow. you know, all these wonderful details. And so I interviewed a few other people and they had great stories too, but I just kept coming back to Margaret's story. And because it was a play, there was just something about the idea of yeah. an Australian <laughs> backpacker working for Harold Pinter that it was just so delicious. And I said to her, how would you feel if I took your story and yeah. imposed a kind of dramatic narrative and arc onto it yeah, and yeah. I'll be absolutely respectful and I'll come back to you draft after draft and I'll also make sure that Harold and Antonia are background figures it won't be about them it will be about you two yes, girls yes. you two backpackers and um and what that was like and she was really open and really fine and uh, I was very nervous showing her the first draft but she was very encouraging and um Lots of serendipitous things happened. Like she got together with the friend who I think they're, they're still friends after whatever it is, 40 years, but I don't think they were necessarily in constant communication over those years. But she got in touch with that friend and told her about the play and the friend still had a notebook with the list of um, items for the lunch that they were throwing for Tom Stoppard and, okay. um, you know, all these wonderful people that would come on Sundays. Yeah. And so I had all these incredible resources to use. So that's where the play began. It was on in January. It was COVID. We were only allowed to have 20 people at a time. And it was very, you know, it was part of the festival, but there weren't kind of major reviews or anything. It was quite sort of under the radar. But it was yeah. a lovely, lovely experience. And it was a tiny little team. It was me, 
the director, the actor, and okay. then a producer from Griffin who, who came and gave us a lot of help. And it was a short play at that it point? It was, yes. And then um, the Ensemble Theatre heard about it and read it and loved it and they said, how would you feel about expanding this into a full evening? So I thought, well, maybe what it could be is three little plays that work together and okay. can exist independently or can kind of ping off each other and so that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah. So yeah. I can't say very much about it because I'm still at the kind of dreaming up stage of the other two plays, except that it will be two one-handers and then a two-hander using both of those actors. Okay, okay. Yeah. But three standalone pieces then? Yeah, and three plays that feature an object. Okay, so that's the Um, common thing, not the the Pinter Yes, yes, yes. Not the Pinter thing, but the object as... I guess as a sort of a metaphor for something important in their lives. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I love that. Because, you know, I, I have a piece, um, Almost the Birthday Party, my play, which is a riff on the birthday party. Well, I saw the title and I wondered. Mm. We should find somebody else who has a Pinter, a Pinter-inspired piece and perhaps we can we could do, do a, a double a Pinter bill. collection somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to admit, I'm a bit embarrassed to say I, I have never seen The Caretaker or read it until two weeks ago because it's on currently in Sydney and it's a wonderful production. Weirdly enough, it's at the ensemble. And do you know the play at all? Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, there's a sort of significant moment where a Buddha gets smashed. Yeah. And I was backstage yesterday because we're going to be performing on that stage. So, And I saw this long row of Buddhas all waiting to be smashed for each performance. But in um, my play, kind of completely unwittingly, the climax is when Harold Pinter's coffee cup gets smashed. Wow. Because, again, I thought, okay, we're in an art gallery. What's the worst thing you could do in an art gallery is smash smash an object yes and so i thought okay let's do it <laughs> so <laughs> the climax is when this this uh housekeeper accidentally breaks what turns out to be harold pinter's most important object and so yes we had our little row of coffee cups backstage waiting to be <laughs> smashed so it was such a sort of strange coincidence to yeah. see the caretaker and, and not to the caretaker yeah yeah but an unwitting nod. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. That's really exciting. <laughs> this is a good excuse for me to make a trip to Sydney and um, and come and see this in September. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be great. <laughs> Before you go, I always like to end by asking everyone to leave us with a top tip for maintaining a healthy writing practice. Mm, that's a wonderful question. And that's one of the things I've loved about listening to your podcast. Oh, I'm getting healthier as a playwright by listening to it. <laughs> I think I've got to harken back to Seven On and talk about how important it is to have a community, to be part of a community. You know, it's a lonely gig being a writer and you do spend a lot of time in a room by yourself. And having a small but trusted group of friends that you can check in with, not just about questions of art and theatre, but about life in general, about what to do when you're feeling miserable, about where's the best place to do a little reading of your own, about does anyone know any actors in their 30s who can sing and play ukulele. You know, to have that little community has just been such a boon for me. And um, maybe it's only one other person, but I, I would recommend as a playwright having somebody in the biz that you can talk to that knows what it's what it's like and knows what you're going through um, and isn't necessarily even from the same kind of theatre that you're making but is simpatico in some way is a really good thing to have that's wonderful that's brilliant hillary thank you so much for your time and joining My us pleasure it was lovely talking to you have a wonderful run with a christmas carol thank you brilliant thank you so much okay you're listening to the writer's toolkit podcast fantastic if you're in sydney hillary's adaptation of a christmas carol is playing at the ensemble theatre from november 25th to December 30th. Tickets can be found at ensembletheatre.com.au and several of Hillary's plays as well as my book The Writer's Toolkit can be purchased in Australia from Currency Press. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay inspired. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Writer's Toolkit podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and share the link with your friends. This podcast is fueled by coffee. If you'd like to support the show, you'll find the Buy Me A Coffee link in the show notes. 